from the newsroom of the Washington Post. Hello, hey you. Here's Louisa Beck from the Washington Post. Hi, this is Beth Reinhardt at the Washington Post. It's Lori Aritani over at the Post. I'm good. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, June 10th. Today, the serious government search for UFOs, what the end of Keystone XL could mean for big oil, and COVID's effect on the brain. Why are UFOs, also called UAPs, which are unidentified aerial phenomena, why are they in the news? They are in the news right now because at the end of the month, Biden's director of national intelligence is planning on releasing a report to the Senate Intelligence Committee and members of Congress that contains everything unclassified that the U.S. government knows about UAPs. Jackie Alamany covers politics for The Post. She spoke to producer Ariel Plotnick about why Washington is suddenly obsessed with UFOs. We have tackled many strange stories on 60 Minutes, but perhaps none like this. Is the truth really out there? We may soon find out. Newly leaked military videos and witness accounts from former Navy pilots have taken the prospect from science fiction fodder to the halls of Congress. And we've already seen preliminary reports from The New York Times of senior administration officials who have been briefed on the findings. That being said, we don't know how much of this report is still going to be classified. Can you describe for me what some of these UFOs look like and who are the people that have noticed them recently? There have been first-hand accounts of little white tic-tac-looking objects, as has been described by two Navy pilots, Dave Fravor, along with Alex Dietrich, were featured in a 60-minute segment. Did the thought of UFO enter your mind? It was unidentified, and that's why it was so unsettling to us, because we weren't expecting it, because we couldn't classify it. But what I want to be really careful of here is that we um, don't jump to conclusions, right? That we don't sensationalize this or... Little green men? uh, Yeah, little green men men. or extraterrestrial. You're seeing something that defies explanation. Right. Very much. Yes. These are people in the U.S. military... And the U.S. government had finally formally acknowledged that these videos were actually legitimate. Who are the people actually in charge of, like, investigating UFOs or UAPs? It's only recently become more transparent to the American people how the government has really began investigating these sightings. But it started more earnestly with Harry Reid, then Senate Majority Leader in 2007. Reid basically requested Pentagon funding to start a secret operation. In my opinion, this is something that we should be studying. And as I said, it's a worldwide phenomenon, not just here in the United States. That became eventually known as the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. Um, That program no longer exists, but there's a new government program that has continued investigating these UAPs. But all of this is basically done under the umbrella of uh, the Pentagon. You talked to someone who has been involved in studying UFOs in relation to the government, Lou Elizondo, 
Who is Lou? And what did he say about this moment where Washington is now taking UFOs seriously? Lou Elizondo is the former director of one of the programs that we just mentioned, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program. He was a boss at the Pentagon overseeing this process. I think he's what some people would call a disclosure advocate, which is the U.S. government being more transparent about their findings when it comes to UAPs. While we still don't know what exactly these UAPs are, there is one key finding that was recently reported by the New York Times about this upcoming report that's expected on on June 25th, which basically is the report is ruling out that there is some sort of secret U.S. government technology that is responsible for these UAPs sightings. That's been a question for decades now, since the 1950s, that it was a secret that our government was keeping because it was some super special technology that was being implemented. And while this report, it's still very inconclusive, but it does rule that out, which is which is huge because basically there have been three different possibilities that this technology is for an adversarial technology, it's U.S. government, or it's something extraterrestrial. Now, as of this week, we now know through some of the discussions at senior level leadership that uh, this, this report has definitively stated once and for all that it's not our technology. Uh, and that's that's hugely important. For 30 years, there has always been this undercurrent, if you will, these conspiracies that there was some sort of TR3B program and some sort of, yeah. uh, of super special technology that has been implemented and we've been uh, just been very careless about it. And I think that argument was finally put to bed this week. Who in Washington supports this report and inquiry into UAPs? It's shockingly one of the only uniting issues of Washington right now. Republicans and Democrats alike want this information to be out there. You have lawmakers on Capitol Hill who are taking this issue really seriously, are eagerly anticipating this June 25th report, and think that Americans and Congress lawmakers have the the right to know. This is viewed by many Republicans and Democrats as a potential national security threat. So... Uh, I think from that perspective, too, you have lawmakers who really want answers here so that the U.S. can can maybe get even more ahead and, and start policymaking around some of these findings. On the subject of national security, a lot of these UFO sightings have been near nuclear weapons facilities in the U.S. What does Lou make of this? So as Lou detailed during this interview, there are UAPs that have interfered with nuclear capabilities in the U.S. and at home. Some of, the, the, some of these incidents have meant that these nuclear facilities have been shut off. He believes that this is concerning from the viewpoint of national security, that there is a potential to interfere with nuclear technology. Um, so from that standpoint, you know, Lou and others have come to the conclusion that this is a a national security issue. I'm curious how the Biden administration 
is responding to this report. One of the Post's White House reporters, Annie Linsky, recently asked Jen Psaki at a press conference about how Biden feels about this UFO UAP report. About um, a phenomenon uh, known as... Uh, the giggle gives away. I don't know what this question is. We'll see. Jim <laughs> already ruined it here. <laughs> uh, but this is you know, quite a serious issue. There are these unrecognized objects in uh, U.S. airspace that are also known as unidentified aerial phenomenon, I understand. Um, and I wanted to see there's a DNI report that I understand is going to be released soon. Can the Biden administration uh, commit to releasing it in full? I'm curious if there is sort of like a shared sentiment that while this topic may seem funny, there's also a seriousness to it. That is a really good question. And there's been quite a bit of criticism um, about Biden's perspective and prioritization or, or lack thereof of the issue. That was something we heard extensively during the 60 Minutes conversation that Biden was focused on the wrong priorities and wasn't taking this seriously enough. And when Biden was actually asked about this last month by a Fox News reporter after President Obama expressed his openness to the issue during an interview, Biden laughed it off and really brushed off the question. President Obama says that there is footage and uh, records of objects in the skies, these unidentified aerial phenomenon, and he says we don't know exactly what they are. What do you think that it is? I would ask him again. Thank you. (laughs) But Obama admitted during an interview very bluntly that there is footage and records of objects in the sky. When it comes to aliens, uh, there are some things I just can't tell you uh, on air. But what what is true, uh, and I'm I'm actually being serious here, is is that uh, there are, uh, there's footage and records of objects in the skies that we don't know exactly what they are. He said we can't explain how they moved or their trajectory. Um, But again, it is keeping in line with the acknowledgement after decades of denial that these UFO sightings are real. Biden has not commented on it as extensively as Obama and hasn't so far publicly taken it as seriously as him. It feels like for a long time, if a politician or even just like a normal person publicly said that they believed in UFOs, you seemed crazy. Is it finally not considered crazy to take these reported sightings seriously? This conversation has definitely taken a turn in recent years from the fringe to mainstream seriousness. And we're now seeing some legitimate information coming to the surface, which is you know, the confirmation that these investigative programs even exist in our national security community and, and in the Pentagon. Uh, and this report on June 25th, I think, is a real turning point for a lot of people who haven't been taken seriously when it comes to this conversation, because a confirmation that this is something that is actually on the U.S. government's radar and that they've been looking into and de- dedicating serious resources. But I think it's pretty telling, though, that there are other countries that have now made it 
part of their military mission like China and making big investments at the moment to identify extraterrestrial life. Some view this as sort of a modern day space race in terms of leading the race on confirming the presence of extraterrestrial life and who gets to the bottom of this question first. Jackie Alemany covers politics for The Post. Ariel Plotnik produced this story. TC Energy, the Canadian company that has financed the Keystone pipeline, announced on Wednesday that it was scrapping the project and that it would not proceed with the northern leg of the pipeline between Canada and the United States. Juliet Alprin covers climate and the environment for The Post. Over the past decade, she has been reporting on the battle surrounding the Keystone XL pipeline, which finally came to an end this week. This project, which has been in the works for roughly a decade and a half, has faced a number of obstacles, both in court and here in Washington. What you've seen is standoffs with activists on the Great Plains, in Nebraska. We've seen arrests in front of the White House where protesters came, particularly under President Obama. Stop that dirty pipeline plan. Michelle Obama, tell your man... And here in Washington, the latest blow came when President Biden took office and rescinded a cross-border permit between Canada and the United States that the project needed in order to construct the northern leg of its route. I've been against Keystone from the beginning. It is tar sands that we don't need, that in fact is in a very, very high pollutant. Ultimately, the company concluded that it was not viable. And so essentially, they gave up. So Juliet, as you mentioned, this project has been incredibly controversial and a huge flashpoint in terms of thinking about the future of climate change and America's energy infrastructure. Can you remind me, what exactly was this project supposed to do? The goal of the Keystone XL pipeline, as it was initially conceived, was to carry more than 830,000 barrels of crude oil a day from the tar sands of Canada to the Gulf Coast, where refineries in places like Port Arthur, Texas, would refine this heavy crude oil and convert it into gas products and other oil products that could be shipped around the world. And so the southern leg of the pipeline actually was approved by Barack Obama in 2012. So essentially, there already is a pipeline that trans this oil from Cushing, Oklahoma, to the Gulf Coast. What's at issue is roughly 1,210 miles of pipeline going from Canada to Steel City, Nebraska, which is the critical northern part of the route. And so that's where the fight has been about, given that Obama greenlighted the southern leg of this pipeline years ago. So the fact that this project has now been canceled, how will that affect 
American energy emissions, or will that have an actual consequence in terms of how much gas is consumed? That's a great question. We are still importing crude oil from Canada every day in large quantities, and it's being shipped in a number of different ways. There are other pipelines that transport this oil. Also, it could be shipped by rail or by truck. And one of the arguments that the proponents of the pipeline made is that it would actually be more energy efficient, in other words, have a lower carbon impact to ship this crude oil by pipeline as opposed to doing it by rail. And there's data to support this kind of analysis. Also under pressure, TC Energy pledged to, for example, offset the emissions of the transportation component by, for example, using renewable energy. What's at issue and and kind of gets to the core of why this became such a flashpoint is that opponents of the pipeline argued that not only is there risk of spill that could have damaging environmental effects, they simply argued that the United States should not help lock in fossil fuel infrastructure. We should not cement this route for oil that will be, frankly, a fairly efficient way to import oil. Raising some of these barriers would provide an added incentive for the United States to shift away from heavy crude and rely instead on cleaner sources of energy. So I imagine activists who were pushing against this pipeline are pretty happy that it is now not going to happen. But I wonder what message this is also sending to the rest of the oil industry. What it's doing is it's really putting the oil industry on notice that every pipeline is now a political battle. And I think that folks in the oil industry are well aware of this. There are a number of key projects underway, some financed by Canadian companies and others financed by American companies. And climate activists and to to a large extent indigenous activists are going after each one of these projects and they will be putting pressure on President Biden to step in and block them, although of course it's unclear whether that will happen. And I wonder what the potential long-term implications of that could be if it does appear that these kinds of projects will be so difficult in the future. It certainly could affect investment. One of the things that's really interesting as someone who's covered these issues for some time is that while politics is not always rational, the market is fairly rational. And when companies look at investments, they are weighing the pros and cons and deciding whether it's worth investing in these kinds of issues. And there's huge money at stake with these pipelines. They're unbelievably profitable, which is why, for example, TC Energy fought for so long. And you still see plenty of companies investing in these kinds of projects. But it does raise the bar when you're someone making a business decision, not a political decision, about whether the highest and best use of your money is investing in a fossil fuel project that's going to be dogged by controversy because this only emboldens protesters. We just saw this week a number of activists arrive at the Line 3 pipeline in Minnesota. 
This is another Canadian pipeline project sponsored by a different company, Enbridge, where they're trying to block that project. And that's an existing project that's being modernized. And so you're going to see these kinds of standoffs. That one seems to have more momentum, but you have a a separate project by that same company, Line 5, that's slated to go through Michigan, where the Michigan governor, Gretchen Whitmer, is right now blocking it. So each one of these projects are going to be skirmishes, which are going to have both battles on the ground and likely battles in court. And Juliet, you are someone who has been covering this pipeline for a long time. I'm curious, like, what are your thoughts seeing this huge project that people thought was going to definitely go through finally come crashing to a halt? It's an extraordinary moment, I would say, as someone who's covered this for more than a decade. When I started looking at the Keystone XL in 2010, It was seen as destined for construction and operation. And this was, again, under a Democratic administration where it was getting a friendly hearing from then-President Barack Obama. And activists really thought that this was a long shot, but that they had no choice but to target it as really symbolizing the one concrete action that Barack Obama could take to weigh in on climate change, given the political stalemate in Washington. And at the time, it seemed like all the odds were stacked against them and that there was really very little chance that they could stop this behemoth from happening. And so to have a definitive ending to the Keystone XL saga, I think says something about particularly climate activism and the work of indigenous activists has taken center stage in the United States over the past decade. Juliet Eilprin covers climate for The Post. Sabi Robinson produced this story. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Glasses in session. Find Try This from the Washington Post wherever you listen. Scientists have known for a long time that COVID-19 affects more than just your respiratory system. It affects your bloodstream, your digestive system, and it also affects your brain. But studying COVID's effect on the brain has not been easy. Brain autopsies are in restricted areas, so we weren't able to go in and watch one happening. But the reasons for the reservations that um, the CDC and other medical authorities have had is that they do create dust. I mean, you can't get into somebody's brain without cutting through skull. And once you're in there, you are at risk of infecting yourself. 
And how have they gotten around that? Is it mostly just by being in isolation, as you said? I think there have been some very brave researchers who have done this in isolation rooms, but have taken on personal risks to do this at the beginning before we knew what we'd find. So we have a lot to thank researchers for. Frances Sellers is a national reporter for The Post. She has been covering the coronavirus for the past year, and she talked to producer Emma Telgoff about how much we still don't understand about COVID and the brain. So this has been one of the great mysteries about this virus, which we thought was a respiratory system to start with, and then turned out to be a virus that was a clotting virus and also triggered autoimmune responses. And one of the issues that has come up over the past year is questions about how it affects our nervous system. And researchers have been doing a whole bunch of things from autopsies on people who've died from this virus, but they've also been doing studies on people who have not died, but who are living with what's called long COVID and have apparent neurological symptoms. And they have ranged enormously from tingling in people's fingers to visual disturbances and the ones that we know particularly well, which is the loss of sense of smell. So do we understand why COVID, which is, you know, mostly a respiratory illness, even causes these effects? We understand it can cause clotting in the brain. We've seen that from the autopsies. We've seen some other acute responses in the brain around the brain stem, which are immune responses. There are immune responses that cause damage there. But no, we don't understand the full picture yet. So some of those symptoms can really linger in people, right? Like these people who have long-haul COVID or long COVID. Do we know why it is that some of those sort of more neurological or nervous system symptoms seem to be lasting for long after people are sick? We don't know for sure. And there are theories and we will learn more, but we don't know for sure. Some patients have been very frustrated because they feel as if their doctors don't believe them. They feel as if they're being dismissed because their concerns seem as if they could be purely psychiatric. I can tell you from speaking to neurologists recently that they are convinced that there are both acute and subacute longer form symptoms that come with COVID, but we don't yet understand the mechanism. One very senior neurologist I spoke to in San Francisco, who is the chief editor of JAMA Neurology, said he believes there may be, and he doesn't know this yet, a parallel to the herpes simplex virus. The way that virus works is normally just to cause cold sores in people. A few people get a dangerous form of brain swelling that's called encephalitis, and that can trigger an immune response. Months or weeks later, some patients deteriorate, not because of the virus directly, but because of that autoimmune response later. That's a potential. That's a hypothesis. We'll learn about these things later on. So how does COVID's effect on the brain compare to other viruses that we've studied before, like SARS and MERS? So this is one of the great issues brought up to me by a researcher who does cognitive neuroscience. And she said to me, we knew during SARS and MERS that they had neurological implications, but we didn't study them very well. And she thinks we should work very hard with this coronavirus before we have another pandemic. Many viruses have an effect, she will say. She studied HIV as well and seen the neurological impact after that. But the message here, I think, from all the doctors I worked with is that we need to protect ourselves going ahead. And the more we can learn now, will arm us better for the future. Can you just explain in maybe kind of, you know, simple terms or layman's terms, how we think the virus actually physically gets into people's brains? 
Yes, this is a really interesting question. And actually, we don't think the virus gets right into the brain. It would be a different form of virus if it was getting into the brain. But we do know that it goes up into people's noses. And when it goes up, it attacks the the cells that line those nasal passages, including cells called olfactory mucosa. And it's probably because of that attack that we lose our senses of smell. However, it seems to be stopped. The brain seems to be protected by something called the cribriform plate that stops it actually moving into the brain. It would be very different if we thought the virus itself was in the brain. What we're seeing in the brain instead in these autopsies is clotting caused by the virus, but not the actual virus attacking the brain inside that protected cavity. And why has it been so difficult to study COVID's effect on the brain? Like, What are some of the barriers to doing this research? Well, one, of course, is that we can't open up people's brains easily when they're alive, particularly somebody who's just recovered from a disease. So a lot of this has relied on these highly risky autopsies that were performed. Another thing that can happen and is beginning to happen is to study brains of people who had milder COVID but died for another reason. And we're going to see more and more of those cases, of course, of people who had COVID, survived, got better, and then died for some other reason and give their bodies to scientific research. That's a possibility going ahead. Other forms of research, of course, are going on, and that includes the work being done by people who are running long COVID clinics. Again, there are problems with the kinds of people who are being treated there. One doctor in New York told me that many of the patients who are suffering from fatigue and things like that tend to be white, tend to be well insured, and tend to come in knowing there's a change in their performance. Some people from lower socioeconomic groups who tend to have other factors might not recognize that fatigue so quickly. So there's a selection bias in the people who come in and report these symptoms. Again, this all complicates the big picture and shows why we need big population studies to understand what's really going on. What comes next in this research? Like how far out might we actually be from fully understanding how COVID works on the brain or developing any kind of treatment? So treatment options may come through these long-term studies. The doctor who told me about the herpes simplex parallel, potential parallel, said there could be more research coming on that in, in coming weeks. So we'll learn things all along, but I'm not sure we'll get the full picture um, for a while. One of the, again, the great lessons from this year is that we've been watching science happen in real time. And it's a messy process, right? We think... Uh, You do a study, you get a result and you move on. But one study is part of the bigger picture. And that's why people are often frustrated when they read a study about, I don't know, alcohol use or coffee intake. And one study seems to contradict another. They're really studies are individual building blocks of a bigger picture. And that's what we're seeing happening here. These individual building blocks that are getting reported on as they go along sometimes seem in conflict, but eventually we'll get the bigger picture and a greater understanding of how this virus works. Francis Sellers is a national reporter for The Post. Emma Talkoff produced this story. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Lena Muhammad. Tomorrow, we have a preview of a new podcast debuting at The Post. It's called Please Go On. It's a show from the opinion section, and it's hosted by James Homan. And we will be sharing parts of their first episode, an interview with someone that you may recognize. 
for those people who could not work from home because their job was not such that they could, you know, get on a Zoom all day, um, it became a, an incredible burden. And so the work that we did, especially in those early days, was about really understanding that this is a matter of survival for working parents. That is on Friday's episode of Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.